Welcome to Olivia Methodrama Leadership Lab series of podcasts for leading in a climate changed world. In this first podcast, our host Robin interviews Andrew White, Associate Dean for Executive Education at Oxford Side Business School. Our first podcast explores many aspects of the climate change debate and how it will affect industry around the world. Robin and Andrew discuss the economics of sustainable technologies and different business climate change initiatives. They explore the characteristics of leadership within organisations who are future-proofing against climate change and ask how companies can help vision the future of sustainability. Other topics include how leaders can be brave and help define their organisation's purpose by developing systems for the future and bringing people together for action. Is knowledge of climate change enough? Are leaders moving fast enough? Where does the catalyst start? Let's hear from Robin and Andrew. So welcome everybody to this podcast in our series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Andrew White. Andrew is Associate Dean for Executive Education and Corporate Relations at Saeed Business School, and he's been in that post since 2010. Andrew is responsible for forging connections between the research, resources, and expertise of the school and of the wider Oxford University with senior leaders in companies and organizations throughout the world. He is responsible for leading the development and delivery of executive programs which serve as the primary platform for the school's communication with those facing the demands of leadership in the 21st century. Andrew is an experienced program director, teacher, and researcher. He has directed and taught on a wide range of executive development programs for organizations such as BAE Systems, Lloyd's Market Association, the government of Abu Dhabi, Avon Cosmetics, State Farm, and IBM. He also acts as a consultant to a number of international organizations. He's a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce, and is a scholar with the Advanced Institute of Management Research. And alongside his current role at the school, in case he didn't have enough to do, Andrew is a fellow of Green Templeton College at the University of Oxford. So huge thanks and big welcome to you, Andrew. Thanks for giving us your time today. And clearly you have a massive range of uh, clients and a lot of uh, depth experience of working with senior corporates. And it would be great just to get a sense from you at the beginning of our conversation about how you have experienced their interface with climate change, with the challenges that climate change presents. So first of all, Robin, thank you for um, interviewing me about this. Um, so looking forward to a good conversation. So to answer your question, what I would say, and I think my first observation is, I think the debate's over. So some of the things which we were seeing um, historically, where you had some CEOs coming out in favor of climate change, others you could say were in denial around some of the things, you know, I, I, certainly what I see, I don't see any, that debate is, is no longer there. Um, I think the question now is how, um, and I'll explain why I think some of the, um, you know, why, why that debate's gone. I think because, you know, what people are realizing in is, and I think a lot of this came out of the investor community. They were looking at some of the investments that were going into coal power stations and gas power stations. Um, and, and these things have a payback over decades. It's not like electronic products, which are in, 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 in the short term. 
and just realizing that the world was changing, that the economics of the sustainable technologies were changing. And therefore, you know, they didn't want their capital tied up in some of these things. So I think fundamentally what's underpinning a lot of this is the, you know, two things happening. One is people realizing that, you know, we're destroying the world in the way we're currently operating business um, and consuming. And the second thing is the technologies that are, you know, not all of them, but some of them are at the core of causing those problems, just don't create good investment returns anymore. So I think that has caused a big shift in where capital is going and is driving a number of things in companies. So I think what you could say is where you had CSR initiatives um, on the one hand, and shareholders on the other, or profit objectives on the other. These things were separate. I think they've converged, um, and you often see with some companies that are just not having CSR departments anymore. The, the, the climate objectives are coming down through the businesses um, um, because they're important. And they're important, yes, because as I say, the investment dynamics have changed. That's causing a change in product portfolio. You've got regulatory implications coming through in a much stronger way. Um, some firms are struggling to recruit younger people if they aren't seeing, you know, to be an organization that's trying to do the right thing for the climate. Um, you know, we're seeing in the business school an increasing focus on measurement um, and what does good measurement mean. Um, so I think from, you know, from a number of different points of view, um, that's why the debate's over. And I think where, where organizations are now is, you know, how do they make the big shifts in terms of capital allocation, in terms of investments, um, in terms of product portfolio, um, to, to really bring to life what they believe, what they see, and what they know is the right thing to do. Well, that sounds very rosy, I have to say. And, you know, the, the debate's over and it just sounds like what you're saying is it's a question of time. It's not a question of whether it's going to happen, it's going to when it's going to happen. Well, not quite, but yeah. So I think there is, it's a lot rosier than perhaps it was 10 years ago. Right, right. So what I'm interested in is still is, is where are the companies or what is the kind of leadership that's teasing out or enabling some companies to be ahead of the curve? Some companies are behind the curve. Some companies, it seems to me, have kind of CEOs and, and a C-suite who kind of get the big picture, but have people who are still, you know, working on the factory floor saying, well, I'm just going to do what I do until somebody tells me I can't. Like, what, what's characterizing the differences between the organizations you encounter? Yeah. So, um, I need to take you back about three years, and I'll give you an example from two oil companies. Um, you know, and this was a conversation, I can't go into the names of them for confidential reasons. Some of the things are in the public domain that you can see. But, you know, I was in a, a conference where there was a CEO of a long established oil company and somebody asked them, you know, what are you gonna do when the world no longer needs oil? And his response was, and I, you know, I su summarize it um, quite accurately. He said, we produce oil, black stuff comes out of the ground. Um, that's what we do, no more oil, no more us. Um, I contrast that with a, the senior group from another oil company where they put electric charging stations into their executive car park um, and they started to shift to, to electricity. Now, when you're standing on the outside, what that second company does doesn't seem to be a lot. But when you think this is what these people believe, this is where they've created their futures, this is, they've staked so much of their identity and their ego needs on oil. 
to make that shift that actually we're charging our cars through electricity, so we're fueling our cars through electricity, and that electricity is coming off solar panels on our roof, and we are investing in that. To me, those symbolic acts or symbolic statements are hugely important. Um, and frankly, you know, as an investor, where would you put your money? Forget about the climate. You know, you'd put it with the group that are actually have a, a vision of the future and, and are going to make some kind of symbolic act about that in terms of what they see as, as, as the shift. So that would be one thing I would see. Um, it's the symbolic acts that these companies do and the statements and the narrative that comes out of um, the, the senior people. Right. So what is it that enables one person to see that and another person to say, we're just doing oil, you know, because I, I also encounter people where yeah, these companies are in very different places. So what is it that's, what's yeah. the kind of characteristics of the leadership that says we're going to put electric charging stations in, in the car park and, and why isn't yeah. everybody getting it? Um, I think there's, you know, there was, I'm not sure this is any longer the case, a degree of bravery. You know, it's the first ones who are going to recognize some of those shifts are happening. So they've had some form of wake-up moment. Um, and to be honest, when you talk to them, it, often it's their kids who are, uh, you know, becoming uncomfortable and expressing discomfort, you know, with the types of organizations that their parents are responsible for leading. And, you know, that can often be a trigger. Frankly, some of them are just switched on people. They're educated. They can, they read the data. They look at the reports that are coming out of the UN and other places. Um, and they can see the environmental and therefore business realities of, you know, where they've got to do. So others are good business people. They're just seeing what the future looks like. And again, it's, it's the time cycles that these types of organizations work in. Um, and they're seeing the growth of, uh, um, you know, a world where solutions are now scalable. They are in place. Um, and frankly, you know, it's hard to have an excuse not to use them. Um, you know, I've just put, I've just, as I said, when we were talking before this, I've just rebuilt my house. Um, you know, we put uh, PV cells on the roof. We've got a highly efficient air source heat pump. The whole thing's got the IT systems in place that makes it all work. And the electricity bills, even in the winter, are rock bottom um, when you've got the insulation there and you've got everything else. And this is no longer, you know, it's, maybe it was a little bit more expensive, but it's not hugely more expensive than before. And, it's, and if you look at the trajectories of the prices and where they're going. Um, so I, I think the, the innovation that's happening is taking away excuses. That's creating markets. That's shifting capital. You've then got the emotional stuff going on when you know, your kids are no longer proud of the kind of industry that you're in. Um, people care about their legacies. Um, and so things like reputation become increasingly important as well. So you sound pretty optimistic, and um, I'm wondering, I, I know you used to go to Davos, I don't know if you go to yeah. the World Economic Forum in Davos still each year, but I'm wondering what kind of conversations are emerging at Davos around climate change? How much is it a central core debate, or core, not necessarily a debate anymore if you say the debate is over, but how much is it a yeah. core conversation, and how much is it still kind of in the margins yeah. and, and a fringe activity for some? Let me go back to what you said before, am I, am I Rosie? I think the challenge we've got is we're not moving quick enough. And when I listen to what the climate scientists are saying, and I see the progress in industry, um, 
I think, you know, that that's where the issue is, is how quickly we are moving. And then the problem is we've got a world which is getting richer um, and they're following the same consumption patterns that we followed. So who are we to judge them? Um, and, you know, that's where I see the, the, the it's, it's very, well, at the moment, the circle doesn't square. Um, and I think that's probably the same, you know, the, the, the debate, you know, the debates at Davos ebb and flow over the years, and it's often dependent on recent events and things like that. Um, so this is no, again, this is, I don't think there's a debate there as such. Um, I, I think the real onus on, on business is how quickly they can drive through the solutions that are needed um, to wide scale adoption. And I, I think where I, where I look at the world and I still see houses going up without solar and without these things, which we know, you know, the economics stack up on. So, you know, what, why is it that those firms are being allowed by regulators not to equip those homes with what we know is appropriate in terms of insulation standards and um, things like that, where we're building out new infrastructure. Um, it's it's probably, that's where the probability, you know, that some of the problems are. And how quickly are we killing things? I gave a talk at um, where you are in Findhorn a few years ago um, about the need to retire things, about how to kill things. And some of those old technologies, you know, that needs to happen much, much quicker, in my view. Um, and so there's a huge leadership role there. You know, you can eke out some more financial returns out of some of these things, but is that the best thing? for the climate or should you just be shutting them down and you know and and putting them into history basically um so it's it's progress in terms of innovation and progress in terms of let's say call it retirement or redundancy of of, of certain assets as well and ensuring that we are using the new technologies which are there um Right. So you talked about whether we're moving fast enough or not. I'm wondering, and you teach a lot of leadership, I'm wondering what do you think are the main levers that would encourage leaders to go faster? You've, num you've, you've mentioned quite a number, investment, the millennials, um, bravery, just knowing it's the right thing. Mm. I'm wondering, though, if you feel like there's one or two key levers that you feel like, well, if we could get this in place, you've also talked about the role of regulation, like if we could get this in place, that would accelerate the movement that we're seeing. Yes. So I think, you know, you could take a few concrete examples here. And I know plastics is, you know, is, is not responsible for um, some of the, the carbon issues. It's more of a pollution issue in the oceans. Um, but the regulators could move much, much quicker in, in just make, you know, plastic is basically too cheap an option. Um, and to me, when you look at businesses, <coughs> excuse me, it, that's, actually quite simple to solve. You need brave politicians um, who are, you know, really focusing on driving down plastic consumption um, and making it, you know, a less cheap option for firms um, and perhaps shifting some of the taxation they may put in place to subsidize innovation in some of the other industries that are making more um, or less, sorry, less polluting um, and, and, and harmful packaging. So I think there's a role for, reg for, for regulators. Um, that said, the world of politics is not in a particularly stable or focused place at the moment. And I think what you're finding is more and more leaders in private are saying, you know, we have to address these things. I don't think that's spilled out yet really into the public discourse. Um, and it's going to take a few of them to be brave 
Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. This is in a different space, but the US um, healthcare retailer, CVS, a few years ago went through a whole conversation around what its purpose was. Um, and it's very similar for those of you who are watching in the UK to Boots, the, the retailer that we know. Um, and they realized that they were selling cigarettes alongside healthcare. And they said, this is incompatible. If we are purpose is healthcare, you know, you shouldn't be collecting a prescription for medication and then buying a packet of cigarettes. So they took a decision to take, to remove cigarettes from their stores. That cost them about $2 billion of income over the, on an annualized basis. To me, that's an organization which is making, being serious about what it's doing. So I think we need more decisions like that, where you come to a realization that there is a, an inherent tension or paradox between what you're espousing on the one hand, what you believe and what you're doing. Um, and then you are wise about the, you know, the dis and brave about the decisions you make um, to move out of those areas, to stop doing certain things um, or to bring innovation um, to what you do. And, and what I would say is that there is a huge opportunity, a huge business opportunity, um, which is aligned with reducing carbon. If you think about the firms that are moving into that space, um, in terms of food and drink, um, in terms of fashion, in terms of um, the, uh, the energy companies. Um, it, it's not as though we're going to stop spending money. It's, it's more, more and more of us want to spend our money as consumers in different ways. So we need more and more solutions that, that, that work for us. And the companies that can do that are, you know, are going to continue to grow and continue to be profitable, which is why I think if you get this right, it doesn't apply to everybody, but there, you know, these things on you know, profitable growth and addressing the climate are not in tension with each other. Right, because sometimes people say, "Well, I can't afford to do the ethical thing." Yeah, and I think in some cases you can't afford not to, and right. that's not just for the ethical reasons; it's for the business reasons, and that's what I see. Is I, I wouldn't say it's converged, but I would say there's much more of an overlap between these things than there have been in the past. Now, I personally wouldn't want to be in some of the food businesses that have been around for the last thirty years. I think their products are looking increasingly old. They're tired. They're consuming too much plastic. That's not what people want. Um, you know, they're wanting organic things. They're wanting, you know, more plant-based products. You know, with ethical packaging. You know, um, through more local production. You know, that's the way the market is going. And the firms that can get into that space are the ones that are going to going to succeed. Right, I couldn't agree with you more. And but I'm wondering also, how much is the is there a role for what gets measured? Like you know, you'll be aware of the triple bottom line idea that we don't just measure profit; we also measure the impact we have on people and on the planet. Yeah. And often, what what we can measure gets results. So, are you seeing the adoption of different metrics in the yeah. organizations you're working with? Um, you know, not yes, but not where it needs to be. And I think this is one of the big things which we're going to see a shift on in the next few years. And I think it's, again, it's being driven by capital. Um, there is a particularly interesting group of what I would call second generation wealth. Um, so these are the kids of the self-made millionaires and billionaires who are increasingly, from what I can see, pulling their money out of the established banks who are managing their assets and looking at funds um, that have more of a triple bottom line or ESG or, you know, the environmental, social and governance um, metrics around it. 
and are wanting their money to do good. Um, and some of them have even set up their own funds, which um, I think will be announced in the, in the not too distant future. Um, and we're seeing an increasing number of investment funds having to put that, putting that focus behind what they do. Now, I think there is a question to the extent to which they're greenwashing what they do or you know, these other ways of describing it. Um, but I don't think we should, it, because of that, ignore some of the underpinning things that are happening. There's a huge amount of work being done to try and measure um, things other than shareholder returns. I think the challenge is if you look at the way stock markets work and investment funds work and firms work, you have to align a lot of things. And I think it, it, it speaks to a lack of systems leaders in today's world, which is one of the other things we're focusing on at the school, um, that many of the problems that we've got today, you can't solve from within an organization. You have to solve at a systemic level. And the measurement question would be one I would put there. And what we know is most people, if in fact, no one really is really trained to be a systems leader. We're trained to be organizational leaders. Um, and so it's something in the school we're really focusing on. What does the curriculum look like for those types of individuals? That's fascinating. So I, I wonder if you could say a bit more because this focus of the podcast, as you know, is about leadership. Like, What do you yeah. mean by and what kind of things do you tease out in the systems leadership work that you're doing? Yeah. So I think if you, you want to know what does a good systems leader look like, if you look, I think her name's Christina Figueroa, who put the Paris Climate Accord. In Christina Figueroa, I've interviewed her for this yes. series also. Sorry, thank you. For, yeah. yeah, she's brilliant. So that's what I would say as a systems leader. They're not leading from just within one organization. They're looking at an issue that transcends many organizations. It's not just about bringing people together to talk. It's about bringing people together to act. Um, and then looking at the tools that you use to formalize those agreements across multiple individuals coming out of multiple organizations. So we need more people like that, I think. Um, traditionally, they've been politicians, um, and I think there probably is still a role for that group, although I think in many parts of the world that they're understanding there's big questions around leadership um, and around how they address some of those things. Um, so what in a sense, what we're doing is firstly helping people to map out what those systems look like, to understand the nature of the systemic challenges, to look at the types of solutions that you can use um, and the types of inter-organizational contractual frameworks or agreement frameworks that need to be in place. And again, the law doesn't tend to you know, bring a lot of those solutions about. And so you know, there's, a, there's a lot that's needed in that space. Um, and then how do you think like a systems leader? How do you understand things from a, a multi-stakeholder point of view? Um, and I think, you know, the world's been very good at convening talking shops. And I think that's, it's clear to say, that's not what, we don't need more talking shops. This is about moving to action and individuals that can, you know, encourage and nudge and persuade and negotiate, you know, those types of, um, you know, agreements that are needed. Um, that hold countries and organizations to, to account. And I think what you're saying is more and more companies hungry for those things because if they've got those things, they aren't then disadvantaged. I think this is one of the things we've got to help companies with. You know, I think most of them would love to get rid of plastics out of their, you know, their portfolios. They, you know, a lot more people believe that that's the right thing to do. It's not a matter of convincing them. 
But how do they do that without being competitively, um, you know, being put at a competitive disadvantage? And that's where they, they're part, they, they would love to be part of a, an, an industry-wide agreement. Um, where everybody then plays by the rules. So it's setting, a, it's setting the, the rules of the playing field um, rather than just you know, relying on individual heroic leadership. Now that's brilliant. I really like the idea of the focus on systems leadership. And, and as you know, also from your work doing constellation work, the, the system itself is embedded in a field. So I'm mm. also curious whether at some point we'll be teaching people to be field leaders. So that yes. you can tap into the intelligence of the field, which supports the system, which supports the organization. So we're going to go deeper, deeper, deeper yeah. into that. I don't know if you're seeing any organizations that are really consciously working with what we might call field theory or, or um, practices. Not in such explicit terms. We are seeing the constellation work as part of the work we're doing on training systems leaders. Um, but I would say if you look at what, you know, that image of the whale in Blue Planet, um, where the whale had, I think it was a plastic bag or a bucket in its mouth. To me, that's where the field is speaking. It, it, it's something that affected so many people. It was a pivotal moment in society waking up and thinking, actually, that could have been me that put that plastic bag there or that bucket there. And I don't want to do that. And so in a sense, then, it's about organizations, I think, then picking up of that wider shift of consciousness to then what that means for their own strategy and what they then do. And if they don't, they could very quickly become out of step with that. Um, and that has commercial implications for them. Right. And you mentioned earlier also the role of, of regulation and the, and the law. And you're as aware, if not more, as I am, that in the UK, there is something in the 2006 Companies Act, which requires directors to take into account the long-term consequences of their decisions and the impact of corporate activities on the community and on the environment. And not many people seem to quote it, be aware of it, work with it. I'm just curious, this is a piece of legislation that specifically says the duties of directors is not simply to maximize the returns for their shareholders, but to take into account these wider parameters do you does it feel like it has had any relevance currency impact from your experience i think it's probably in the uk taken away the excuse that to do anything other than it that's in anything other than that's in the interest of the shareholders to be borderline illegal because of the breach of fiduciary duty um now, what it's allowed is things like um the b team and others to kind of put different, and there's a whole load of these types of organizations, as you well know, who are trying to think through what different business models. So I would say it's relaxed the framework in which people operate. Um, has it maximized its potential? Probably not, but that's down to the government in terms of how it produces the case law around it. Right, exactly. I'm just wondering if there's anything else you want to touch in on. I feel like we've had a, a deep and wide-ranging yeah. conversation already. Um, it does feel to me like you're, you're sitting in a fairly optimistic camp in terms of people getting the issue and getting the topic and getting the need to change, whether we're moving fast enough is the, is the, key, is the key question from yeah. where you sit. I would say optimistic and pessimistic. Optimistic because of those yeah. reasons. Pessimistic because we're not moving quick enough. So I, I wouldn't say I was in a pure optimistic camp at all. I just see that the debate has 
fundamentally shifted from where it was 10 years ago. Um, no, I think the thing which we haven't really grasped in all of this is, and I don't think we can continue to consume as we're consuming at the volumes that we're consuming with the numbers of people that we've got. And that's the bit that I don't think anyone's really got their head around. Um, and, you know, if our, if our economy was to contract by 20% because we didn't need as much stuff, and that may happen without any regulatory intervention. It may just happen because people, you know, have passed through this consumer cycle or, or this cycle within human evolution. Um, but then when you put that into a global context, um, you know, I think what makes us happy in life and what gives us satisfaction um, you know, I think some of those questions are going to become more and more um, relevant, I think, particularly with mass automation. Um, and whether that happens, I think there's a question over, but certainly there's the potential for it to happen. And therefore, what does work look like? Where, you know, employment for most people has given them an identity and income, security and a sense of purpose in life. And that feels as though it may not be as robust as a means to do that going forward. Um, so where we get joy from, where we get satisfaction from, where we get a sense of purpose from, um, you know, work and consumption have been two dominant forces, certainly over the last few decades. Um, and, you know, they may not be as dominant in the future. Uh, but what replaces them, I think, you know, there are some big questions around. And that's not just an individual question. That's a societal question, um, if it's really to make an impact. And that's where I see, you know, there's, there's two edges. There's that, which is a big macro edge, which is, you know, I don't know what the answers are. And then there's the go faster, um, which I think is much more um, present. And I think, you know, is, 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 is thing, you can feel things speeding up um, in, in, in front of us. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I realize I do have one more <clears throat> little question, which is really because it's about leadership that, that we're focusing on. Like, where is it always the CEO that needs to get it? Can it be the board that gets it? Can it be some middle manager who gets it? Like, where does the leadership start to catalyze the shift in an organization? Where, where, where's where's the, the lever in terms of positions in organizations that understand the need to do all the things you've talked about around climate change? So we have seen a number of examples of where, and I think if we can broaden out just from climate change, I think if it's just the leader, then there can be problems. And we saw that with Anthony Jenkins in Barclays. We saw that with the CEO of Grant Thornton or the managing partner, Sasha um, Ramanovich, I think if I pronounced the name correctly, um, where they, I think, got too far out ahead of the rest of their organization. I think you've got other organizations that have not listened to their younger people, their younger employees, and they're seen as the leaders are seen as dinosaurs. So, you know, I think this probably transcends a whole group of individuals, and it's the individuals who can really take the system around them with them. And, you know, we know that Paul Polman and Unilever did this over the last 10 years. And it wasn't just about him and a group of people who were around him at the top, but it was his board. It was what he said to shareholders. 
It was the way he brought in, you know, organizations which historically had had a very arm's length relationship with business like Greenpeace and Oxfam and Amnesty and others, and built relationships and interventions and used them as consultants. That then enabled them to attract a very different caliber of young people coming in um, and, you know, be a sought after employer for highly educated young people who also cared about the people and planet as they would characterize it. So, and then you've got a whole army of individuals who are working on these things. So now, but without someone at the top, I think it becomes very difficult. But with, if the someone at the top thinks they can do it themselves, I think it's also an, an impossible task as well. So it is, it is about leadership and it's about a whole community of people inside and outside the organization um, addressing some of these things. Right, and that's maybe a good place to close because it also reflects back to what you said about systemic leadership because Paul Palmer, yes. for example, at Unilever is someone who really understands the need to listen to the system as a whole. Yes. As you say, he brings in unlikely partners to have conversations with and says, I can't do this without knowing what the impact is for you in Nigerian women or you know, whatever. Like he'll bring in a very broad uh, group of people into, into one big tent that, that's yeah. Unilever. And that's really systems thinking also. Yeah. I would, I would add just two other examples in before we close. And again, it's, it's not in the space of climate. Um, but it's, if you look at some of the US companies, um, and I can't remember the exact details, but there was a whole load when one of the states put some LGBT laws in place um, that were very anti, the companies pulled out. Um, there was another example where one of the big IT firms realized that their software was being used for some of Trump's policies along the Mexican border, border. and the staff said, we're not happy with this. And so the company then pulled out. I think the CEO said, you know, we're not, we're not going to do this. So we're seeing corporations in meaningful ways start to become activists. Now, who would have thought that was the case 10 years ago? You know, where they're saying, you know, we're uncomfortable with this. And I think as we got more polarized politics, you know, organizations are finding a voice and, and a power in where they base their offices and, you know, the policies that they put in place. Um, and, you know, they're driving some of this change um, independent of legislation. And there are two concrete examples that, you know, there are, there are others as well where the old world would have been is, well, you know, we don't make the legislation, we just, we just live within it. Here they're saying, actually, we don't, we don't want our LGBT people to be, you know, under this kind of regime. You know, we care for them, you know, we protect them, and therefore we're going to move our offices or we're going to do something um, that says that we're not happy with this. And to me, that's a form of activism that, you know, we associated with different types of groups, which we're starting to see in, in the corporate space. Again, more of it. Yeah, I think that's a great note on which to close, actually, the, the idea of organizations as activists. I really like that. And yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for a great that's conversation. Great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, um, thank you for your time. And thanks for all the work you do in the world. I mean, you work with some of the most senior leaders around the globe. And I know you do fantastic work with them and, and wish you every success in the future. And thanks so much for your time today. That's great. Thank you too, Robin. All the best. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.